when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the Huffington Post politics podcast about crap that happened <laughs> this week in Washington, D.C. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Sam Stein. Hi. And healthcare policy expert, Jonathan Cohn. Do we put those words together? Expert and Jonathan? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes, I'm here. Modest, <laughs> modest healthcare Your policy expert, expert Jonathan, Jonathan Cohn. Cohn. Thanks for being here. So this week, the, the big news was all healthcare all the time. Republicans in the U.S. Senate unveiled their, their secret healthcare bill, and they were going to vote on it, but then they like slipped on a banana peel and said they'd vote on it maybe sometime later, and they might do a different bill entirely. What is going on, Jonathan? Well, if you watched what happened when the House first took this up, this all had a very familiar feel to it, right? I mean, the House, when Paul Ryan got the bill together, he was going to, you know, here we are, we have the bill, we got the majority, let's go vote. And at the last second, oh, wait, we don't have the votes. They were going through the tunnel like a football team at the beginning of a big game. And then they all looked at their phones like, oh, shoot, we got to go back. Run back. Run back. We're not ready. Um, you know, the catalyst was, and I think a lot of us thought this was the last. I mean, uh, we, we've been talking amongst ourselves and, and we've been waiting as this negotiation about this bill. Like, what could sort of take them off track? What could? And, and I think a lot of people thought the last point that this – the last – kind of intersection where this could fall apart was the CBO score. The CBO was going to come out. It was going to say what this bill was going to do, and that could really spook a bunch of them. And sure enough, I think that did – that was the catalyst. I mean, it came out. Sure enough, it you know, you know, for all the talk, oh, we're going to make the House representative's bill, we're going to make it better. Well, no. I mean, it looks basically the same. You know, this is a bill to take insurance away from a lot of people. And the CBO said, guess what? You're going to take insurance away from a lot of people. And you're going to do it in a way that even people who have insurance are going to owe more money. And I think people that just spooked a lot of people. Did it really spook them? Or were they looking forward to the CBO <laughs> score as like an escape hatch from this dreadful bill they were secretly writing? So that's that they a, didn't ever really want to have to take a vote on. Well, I think it's absolutely the case. There's not a lot of enthusiasm for this bill, and that's. Oh, I mean, there's a weird question of how this bill has gotten as far as it has, when very few people seem to really want it. Um, the one thing I don't know is, I mean, you listen to these senators, and this was true in the House debate too. They don't. Re- a lot of them don't really understand this proposal, even at a superficial level. I mean, I I think some of them may have been genuinely surprised to learn that this bill they had been talking about was going to have such devastating effects. I was not surprised. You were not surprised. We knew what was going to happen because, you know, we follow this stuff, Uh, you know, and for some reason, I think a lot of them just are living in in either either not paying attention or they live in a fantasy world. They really thought the numbers wouldn't look that bad. Two things um, struck me this week. One was um, <clears throat> a column by Hugh Hewitt in the Washington Post. Uh, it was a case for passing the health care bill. Uh, and the case that he made contained not one iota of policy uh, discussion. It was strictly a political case that Hugh made. Um, and at one point in the bill, I mean, his whole point was if you don't pass this, you've, you know, fall, you've failed on the premier uh, promise of the past eight years, which is repeal and replace Obamacare. You've shown that you can't govern. This is you being Republicans. And you will lose office because you will depress your base. That that was Hughes' entire case. But the line that struck me in the the article was he at one point implored Republican senators to vote for, quote, whatever compromise uh, comes out, 
of this process. And I was just like, whatever, literally did not matter what they put out there. You had, in Hugh's case, you had to vote on it. And is that, is that intellectual? Well, I actually thought it was honest. Okay. Um, in a way, I mean, I thought it was disturbing, but I thought it was honest in a way in that because he's a guy with glasses. Yeah, well, obviously he's, he's one of those like yeah, really yeah. intellectual <laughs> guys. But it was honest because, um, in the end, the entire case to pass this bill is based on a political promise, and that's solely it. Um, there is not, there is no intellectual case to pass the bill that I've seen. Even the intellects who are out there, the Republican healthcare policy wonks, don't really kind of skirt around the idea. Um, of why this is a good bill on the merits. Um, the other thing that uh, struck me was the polling that came out this week. Uh, there was a poll, I believe yesterday, that had it at 12% uh, favor- favorability rating. I mean, 12% is like abysmal. Yeah, I mean, that's like herpes. Th- things don't poll that poorly. I mean, honestly, it's, it's really remarkable to think, um, that something can poll that po- poorly. And it's not as if people are unfamiliar with, What's going on here? I mean, there's a certain amount of the populace who isn't paying attention, but it's not dramatically bigger than, you know, what you find for most other issues where the population just isn't paying attention to politics in general. And for um, a group of Republicans, keep in mind, we're still talking about 45 Republicans who are gung-ho to pass this thing. For a group of Senate Republicans to just be like, we don't really know what's in this thing. It's polling at 12%. Let's pass it is really an amazing thing to actually witness in real time. Um, and Jonathan's absolutely right. Uh, the CBO score spooked them. Uh, and the reason it spooked them and the reason that they were caught off guard, um, by the, the, the result of the CBO score is because this process has been crafted in a way to catch them off guard. Um, no one has seen the bill until four days prior to its vote. Um, you know, it's crafted in secret. Now we knew the broad outlines of it. Um, but, you get spooked when you see those things if you don't have hearings, if you don't have witnesses who come in and tell you what's going to happen, if you don't talk to your constituencies or you don't let the March of Dimes come in and brief you on these things, which is apparently what Mitch McConnell refused to do. That's when things like a CBO score will spook you. You, If you had done the process through a fairly normal legislative process, you wouldn't be spooked by that. You'd, be, you'd expect it. Now, the thing I have – a question I do have for Jonathan is um, the Medicaid component of this um, – you know, there is a case, an intellectual case to make that they could do the reforms, putting aside the Medicaid stuff, to the individual market. And you might not like how they do it. It might result in adverse problems. But you could do it because there are problems in the Obama insurance market, the, the uh, individual insurance markets. Um, the Medicaid stuff seems outside that realm of reason. But is there – as you look at this, as you talk to people, what's the what's the rationale that they make, the lawmakers, the advocates? What's, what's the rationale they make to say, yeah, we need to actually reform Medicaid now? Right. So, I mean, uh, it, it's a bit of a bait and switch, right? The rationale for why they have to repeal it. It's this terrible law. It's, it's, it's oppressing people. Um, it's, you know, the markets aren't working. Virtually every criticism they make of it, the popular ones, have to do with, like you said, the marketplace side. Oh, you hate the mandate. Oh, the insurance premium. Yeah. That's all about the private insurance side. They don't, you know, the public case they make, you know, they're loud, they're, they're applause lines, have nothing to do with Medicaid. And yeah. in fact, uh, as many Republican senators are now saying, actually Medicaid's pretty popular with their sure. constituents. Um, and we've done, you know, the surveys. People who have Medicaid, who've gotten it through um, the the through the Affordable Care Act, are happy with it. I mean, they're much, they're frankly happier than the people who got private insurance. Um, this is all about them grafting on. They they hate Medicaid. You know, this is a this is Paul Ryan's dream from when he was in college at and drinking at the keg, and you know, you know, he wanted to get. This is their long. They are using repeal of the Affordable Care Act as their vehicle to carry out something they've, you know, they just want to get rid of this program that dates back to Lyndon Johnson's era, you know, this guarantee of, you know, insurance for the poor. And they are trying to basically, you know, get sneak that in, you might even say. Why, why is there no discussion of just repealing the expansion of Medicaid that took place from the Affordable Care Act instead of doing that and then also completely changing the way Medicaid works? Why why is there no middle ground between the the extreme thing they're trying to do and what Obamacare did? Well, and 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 if you think about it, I mean, if you were actually, if we were in a sort of responsible era of policymaking, you were trying to think how could you actually get some bipartisan work. I mean, if Republicans came to the table and said, "Look, we want to work," you know, we think the exchanges are broken. Yeah. We want to. You could you could talk. That's a bipartisan conversation because they really are not working in some parts of the country. So what's the, what's the bipartisan legislative outcome in a ideal in an ideal platonic? World, so I think Republicans would say, look, 
Medicaid, let's leave that alone. Okay. Um, it's, it's not broken. We don't like it. We want to get rid of it. But that's a separate conversation we're going to have. Um, and let's not get rid of the taxes. You know, we're not going to we're not going to pull back the taxes that finance the Affordable Care Act sure. because, again, as Republicans, they don't like that. But you know what? That pays for the Medicaid expansion. You know, and so let's leave those two parts and let's just look at the exchanges. And you start talking about, well, okay, what are the things that Republicans want? Well, they they, they don't like regulation, right? They want to let insurance companies charge more to older people, sure. less to younger people, right? They don't think it's – they want to – Offer skimpier plans. Skimpier plans um, They uh, and they don't like the individual mandate. Okay. So Democrats can say, all right, look, we, we actually think the individual mandate is good uh, because it Not keeps good, the market necessary. stable. Necessary. Yeah. But maybe there are other ways. So we would talk about other ways to do that, right? We think that the requirements for plans need to be higher. We don't like skimpy plans, but if you want to give people that option, we can talk about that, maybe. Yeah. You know, and we can talk about letting the insurance companies, as long as you give us something in return. And the Democrats would probably come and say, "Look, we need more money. Then we need to make sure if you're going to let insurance companies vary those premiums more, so that older people, younger people, can pay less. Older people are going to have to pay a lot more. You got to protect those people. Yeah. And if you want to get rid of the individual mandate." Find come up with some other way to keep the market stable. There is like this is a classic case where it's not that hard to imagine those pieces coming together, and it's kind of a rare win-win for everybody because Republicans, you know, maybe even get to take the mandate down or put it at a state option. Hey, we got rid of the mandate. They get you know some regulation relief. Uh, Democrats who frankly care more about the policy than the politics on this one. I really think that's true. I think they really want this to work and they care about Obama's legacy and sure. that's you know they want to preserve that. And you know, people get insurance. I mean, that's not a not a bad deal. So they pulled their plan vote on yeah. Wednesday and then on Thursday some new details started emerging about uh, another try. Right. And what what was import what things would be worth knowing from those if you're not intimately familiar with the innards of this legislation? Like what what big thing are they trying to do differently now? So, I mean, the big thing to know is this thing is not, you know, it's not dead. Uh, and, and and this happened, we, we all saw this with the House, right? Oh, the, you know, they sort of get, they pulled the vote. Everyone's like, oh, you know, fine, it's all done. And, you know, three weeks later, it's like back like a, you know, like a vampire or whatever. Frankenstein. I, Frankenstein? No, vampire. Zombie, guys. Come yeah, on. zombie. Uh, this is like well, basic way, monster knowledge. <laughs> I'm way out of my like expertise lane now. On, you know, you know, but we should let the readers know that Jonathan and I are the in-house uh, skeptics, so we always assume that this thing's gonna pass. Basically. Right, we always assume <laughs> that they could, you know, buy off enough votes. I mean, there's 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 traditional buying off of votes, right? I mean, you look at you know, there's somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen senators who are negative on this. What is McConnell going to do to get them? You know, two of them are from Alaska. One in particular, Murkowski. So, and potentially, you know, do you throw some money at Alaska extra high? Does Alaska get higher reimbursement rates for its Medicaid? And of course, it wouldn't be Alaska per se. It would be have something to do with population density. Be aware of any provisions in the law that are you know restricted to states with particularly low population density. You know, <laughs> Alaska is very sparse, so you just sure. set it low enough, you only get Alaska in there. Um, so you'll see things like that. Um, they are trying to bring along. Uh, uh, Shelley Moore Capito. Did I say yep. that right? You got it. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> see, I don't cover Congress. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito and, and, and to some extent Rob Portman who have uh, opioid epidemics, you know, throw some money, you know, at, at an opioid program. $45 billion or $45 so. billion, which is what they had asked for originally. Yeah. Conspicuously, the bill did not have it in it. Everyone has assumed that was deliberate, so then they can make a big show of demanding it. Sure. McConnell gives it to them. They say, "Look, we won this." The irony is that House Republicans rejected Obama's uh, plea for one billion dollars in 2016, so we get, went from one billion not being being too much to 45 billion being about right. Mitch McConnell is a genius. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So and they might and there was also rumor that they might ditch their tax repeal. Right. For for wealthy uh, investors, or was it the insurance companies? No, 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 the wealthy investors. So yeah. I mean, Obamacare, you know, raised taxes on the very wealthy on their investments. It helps pay for, because mm-hmm. you know, and 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 of course that's something Republicans hate uh, and have been dying to get rid of. Uh, Bob Corker, senator from uh, Tennessee, who often says reasonable things, which is not the same as then voting the way he talks, but he often says very reasonable things, has been walking around saying maybe we shouldn't do that. And on Thursday morning actually said maybe we won't do that. You know, It's one of these moving pieces. You know, In between the time I sat down, we sat down for this podcast and it's over, it could have changed. But that is definitely in play, it looks like. Uh, conservatives in the House would really go for that. Not... So here is the weird thing. I mean, this is. Were you Borat? <laughs> this gets back to the, what Sam was saying before with like how 
committed they are to passing anything. Right. I mean, if you listen to the housing, you know, our colleague Matt Matt Fuller has sort of reported this that like, you know, don't assume House Republicans won't just, you know, take what's given to them. Um, they are, you know. Pass something. Pass anything. I mean, you know, who knows? There is a thread of logic that the worst thing that you can do if you're a Republican in Congress is do nothing. I don't necessarily believe that, by the way, but they believe but that. But they believe it. Okay, we'll leave it there on healthcare. Now, Sam Stein. Yes. I have god awful news for our listeners, which is that <laughs> you are leaving the Huffington Post. I am. Which is now known as the Huff Post. Huff Post. So uh, it's horrible news. You're going to the Daily Beast where you'll be the bureau chief of no, their no, DC no, no. bureau. They have, a, they have a bureau chief, Jackie Kucinich. I'm going to be helping her out with uh, running political coverage. You're going to be a political director. Yes, yeah, so to say. Well, uh, we're sad. Thank you. But we know you'll thrive. <laughs> uh, but in addition to this bad news, we actually also have some good news, which is yes. that in a sense you won't be completely leaving. No. What are you going to leave us with? So uh, thank you for the setup. Uh, we have launched season two of our podcast, Candidate Confessional, um, uh, the Emmy award-winning platinum, multi-platinum podcast, Candidate Confessional. Did uh, you say Emmy or Webby? Emmy and Oscar-winning. Uh, yeah, we managed to do both. Uh, and you, this Webby. is you and Trifecta. Jason Cherkis. Yes. I, the, the greatest thing I accomplished at Huffington Post was uh, doing a project with Jason Cherkis and living. Uh or not killing him. So, yeah, I, I deserve, like, a Nobel as well. Anyways, the podcast is um, – it, it focuses on what I think is the most fascinating part of politics, which is losing. Uh, I always think, you know, history is written, written by the winners, but I think the losers really do have the best stories. And, you know, oftentimes we look at this stuff and, and um, we don't actually uh, absorb the humanity uh, and the pain and the, and the toil that comes with actually being in the political arena. In the first season, we did um, – only candidates who would run for office. So we talked about their campaigns and how they f- came up short. And in this season, uh, we did things a bit differently. So we talked to some candidates, but we also talked to people who uh, made major legislative pushes and, and fell short. So uh, next week, uh, this coming Wednesday, we're, we have Chris Murphy on the Center from Connecticut to talk about what it was like to push for gun control in the days after the tragedy in Newtown and what it was like to watch as it failed. And uh, it's a really, uh, I mean, it's obviously a very uh, depressing, tragic, uh, saddening episode. Um, But it also gives you a really interesting insight into what it's like to actually come to Washington and have a cause and and to devote your life to something and to, you know, feel like you have a, a commitment you made to these family members and to then ultimately let them down. And I don't think people fully appreciate how difficult it is uh, in moments like that. So we have Chris Murphy. We have Barney Frank on the compromise that ended up being Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We have two of the people who were had front row seats to the first failed TARP vote, which caused the market to crash by like 770 points. Which caused George W. Bush to say, this, this sucker, sucker could, could go, go down. down. In regards to all of the country. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite political quotes of we, all time. We actually did talk about that quote on the episode. Yes. And then we have uh, candidates as well. So we have uh, Trey Radel, the uh, infamous cocaine congressman. Uh, we had Bernie Sanders fundraising team. Uh, we have a guy named David French. You might not know him, National Review writer who briefly was floated as a independent candidate by Bill Crystal and then watched his life get picked apart by online trolls. And then a personal one, um, we have Riel Hunter, uh, who was the uh, mistress to John Edwards. Uh, the reason we have her is that uh, she and I have a very odd history where I was the first person to actually report on her uh, potential One of your earliest – that was your first HuffPost scoop. Yes. And uh, for – Many years, we never spoke. Uh, last year, I called her and I said, would you like to talk about this shared experience? Our lives sort of changed demonstrably from that moment on and mine in very different ways than hers, obviously. But uh, we had a really interesting conversation about how things went after that and why things happened the way they did. So it's a really good season uh, and I encourage everyone to tune in, rate the podcast and share it with the friends. I second that encouragement. Uh, it's going to be terrible not to have you here, but it's it's you're leaving on an ex- extremely classy note by creating this season of podcast episodes that we'll have for a few months. Yeah. Okay. Still sad to leave. Can I jump in? Yes. Real quick. Can I say something? So just I I, I just wanted to say uh, echo uh, uh, echo the. Uh, uh, 
how much we're going to miss you here. And uh, for, for your podcast listeners out there, I mean, if you've listened to Sam or you've seen Sam on TV, you may get this impression. He's this really nice, thoughtful guy. <laughs> and, and what you need to know is that's not quite right. He's actually nicer and more thoughtful in person than he is in his persona. He's, Damn, he's, <laughs> he is, he is, he's a real true mensch, and, and we're just going to miss him terribly. So he'll do great stuff elsewhere, but we will miss him. Damn, All right. Damn. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, S.V. Date. Hey there. And my other colleague, Paul Blumenthal. Hello. And this week, I think we have really seen a coalescing around the term Trump care for the Republican health care <laughs> bill. It was Ryan care for a minute a while ago, and now more and more people are calling it Trump care. So what is President Trump doing to get Trump care past. Uh, Sharish, you are a White House correspondent, so you've been following Absolutely. this closely. He said a ve- he sent a very angry tweet about the New York Times, about their fake news, and he said a whole bunch of other tweets about uh, the Russian investigation, how it's a hoax and stuff like that. Oh, and, no, uh, wait a and minute. Then, and then, did I mention Amazon? He's also going after Amazon because they apparently don't pay an internet tax, which as far as I know doesn't exist. Uh, Sharish, what do those things have to do with Trump care? What do you mean? Well, he said angry tweets. I mean, okay, yeah, no, that's my point. Is that he he really has not been engaged, and uh, the 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 very wise people in the Senate say, "Oh, that's by design," because you know we really want to work this out by ourselves, and he just gets involved and makes a mess, and so it's better that that he doesn't. In reality, he ha- really doesn't know anything about the spill. He hasn't. He never has. I mean, why is this a surprise? When he was talking about it at the campaign trail, what he said, what he realized was, well, Republicans don't like this Obamacare thing. I should be against this if I want their nomination. And he was. But look at his comments in his life prior to that. He had really no clue about what it was that he wanted. There were times that he complimented the healthcare system in Canada. There are times he said single payer doesn't sound so bad. So, you know, this is kind of unmoored from any type of philosophical leaning of his because there isn't one. Uh, you have long been a proponent of the theory of Trump that he is not crazy like a fox, that he, he is, sort of doesn't know anything <laughs> and doesn't care. That is correct. That's your theory of what's right. going on, that well, it isn't a three-dimensional chess it's like bad checkers. Uh, that's right. He he basically will play, and then he'll throw the board in the air and gets mad and walks away. So that's you know. And uh, do, do you think that he's been helpful at all in this debate for Republicans? Has he advanced anything, or has he he mostly just sort of set them back at every possible step? Well, not at every possible step, but most steps, right? I mean, it, it, it's a problem when he's unable to to articulate a view that other people can either join or not join. When all he says is, we're going to have something great and it's going to be wonderful and tremendous, that's not helpful because people who, one way or the other, either you know you, you, you think that government has a responsibility to provide health insurance and health care to everybody or you don't or some, somewhere in the middle, but those are usually based on some philosophy of what you, what you think ought to be and he doesn't. And so when all he wants to do is get something to his office that he can sign – and then claim victory, 
that's a problem. I mean, look how he dealt with it when the House passed its version a few weeks ago, right? He had basically a rose garden ceremony, which you generally reserve for like bill signings or you know heads of state coming, things like that. And, and then he said it was mean. And then <laughs> Just he a couple the bill of weeks later, he said it was mean. Right? Paul Blumenthal, I am not a political consultant, but I want to know when the president said the House bill was mean. Did that help Senate Republicans pass their version, which is essentially the same as the House bill? I mean, I am also not a political consultant, but I think if you're trying to pass something that you support, you probably don't call it mean. I'm just a small town (laughs) country lawyer. But when President Trump said the House bill was mean, that didn't help, right? I would think it would not help to call it mean, considering Democrats immediately jumped on top of this word mean and started running with it. They made giant signs that they carried onto the floor and that said mean. mean. So that that was not clever negotiating by the president. And anybody who's watched Sesame Street knows that being mean is a bad thing. I do watch Sesame Street and I did know that. So I don't watch it. Anymore. There was another <laughs> very strange thing that Trump said this week on camera, and we'll play a clip of it. We have to have health care and it can't be Obamacare, which is melting down. Uh, the other side is saying all sorts of things before they even knew what the bill was. This will be great if we get it done. And if we don't get it done, it's just going to be something that we're not going to like. And that's OK. And I understand that very well. But I think we have a chance to do something very, very important for the public. Wow. So President Trump said that if they don't pass something, they just won't like the situation, but it'll be okay. Yeah, and and I understand that very well. So what do we we read from that? We read – he doesn't really know what's in this bill and why it's that different from Obamacare. And, and quite frankly, the Senate version, if you take away the Medicaid stuff, the rest of it's kind of like what we have now with a few tweaks. And that's something that people who philosophically were opposed to the Affordable Care Act for doing exactly that will hate. And uh, those who were interested in the Medicaid side, they don't know what to deal with because he, he doesn't – he doesn't articulate what needs to happen. Again, uh, they have this idea that they want to do this this year. If they don't do it by the end of this year, they're in a they're in a heap of trouble. Paul yeah. Blumenthal, you know, I'm not a high level campaign consultant. I, you know, I'm just an ignorant city boy. But I thought that Trump had said Obamacare was collapsing and that it was like ruining America. He continues to say that at every chance he gets. I mean, that's that's his main pitch for passing this fantastic, tremendous bill that will save health care in America, as he as he claims. Oh, but OK, but wait, but, if he just said that if it doesn't pass, we just won't okay. like it and it'll be OK. Isn't that different from what he said previously? It is quite different. Yeah, I, I think our problem is worrying too much about what he says. That, you know, if, if you read the CBO, both the House version and the Senate version – there's nothing in there about about Obamacare collapsing. I mean, some of this collapse is because insurance c- companies are looking at the president's actions, the Congress's actions, and saying, we don't know what's happening next year. So it's better just to stay out and not lose a ton of money potentially. And, uh, and, and just when they settle it, we'll figure out what we're going to do. So if there's uncertainty and there's problems in the marketplace, I think we have an idea of where some of that is coming from. So it's not just what he says. The White House is also like – Staged photo ops. With, they had senators come over there. Uh, they are applying pressure on Dean Heller, aren't they? The vulnerable, uh, most vulnerable Senate Republican from the state of Nevada. Trump's campaign thing ran ads against right, him. Right. And Mitch McConnell, I believe, uh, had some views on that. I, I think he called it, what, beyond stupid or something like that. So, yeah, again, going back to the unhelpful, going after senators' votes who you, you know, who you need – and uh, threatening to beat them in primaries is probably not the best thing. And, and Heller is, you know, he's one of the on, only or very few Republican senators up for re-election in 2018 who are vulnerable to being defeated by by a Democrat. And, right. And the governor of his state, uh, Sandoval, a Republican, very much against this bill. And it seems like Heller doesn't really want to separate from the actually popular governor of his state. 
which now has a Democratic legislature, Democratic state Senate. It's somewhere where the Democrats actually made gains in the 2016 election. Oh, dear. Uh, with, a, with an actual, you know, they actually have a strong local party, uh, which I guess they can thank Harry Reid for. Um, so I don't know what they're, you know, I don't, I don't think attacking Dean Heller with a dark money group being run by God knows who and funded by God knows who is really going to help Trump out. It's another one of these things where uh, you look at it and it seems like uh, questionable practice for okay, trying well, I, to pass I, their I legislation. We'll, we'll have to just admit that we can't understand the genius of the uh, Trump negotiating <laughs> strategy. It's on a higher level. Now, there's a, a separate Capitol Hill issue that I'm just dying to argue about. Yeah, Jason Chaffetz uh, is the senior Republican in the House of Representatives, former Oversight Committee chairman, is just leaving Congress to go be a Fox News contributor because he wants more money. Yeah. Hasn't he already been a Fox News contributor? I, I just keep seeing him on their TV. Okay, well, so, the so he's yeah. announced that he has formalized his relationship with Fox News and they're going to pay him now yeah. and he won't just be volunteering his commentary. So he said an amazing thing on his way out the door to the Hill newspaper, which is that he doesn't feel like he can afford to maintain his home in Utah. And his home in Washington, which most lawmakers do because they have to spend so much time in both places. He said to The Hill, I really do believe Congress would be much better served if there was a housing allowance for members. So, wow. And and then he went on to suggest a a $2,500 monthly stipend for lawmakers to pay rent here in Washington. Now, I think because (laughs) I'm an ignorant person – from the city and country or whatever, <laughs> that with the $174,000 salary, members of Congress do not need more money to afford uh, their dual housing situation. They already have triple the U.S. median household income, and they ought to be able to figure it out. Yeah. But a lot of people have been disagreeing about this this week. What do you think, SV. <laughs> I think I'm, maybe I'm the only one in this office who, with this unpopular view, which is, you know what? If you want some of the best and brightest in this country to be in Congress, then pay them. I mean, uh, I, I spent 20 years my, of my career in Florida, uh, most of that covering the Florida legislature. And I saw a number of times uh, people would leave the Florida legislature to take jobs at the county and city level because those were real jobs and they paid – Honest salaries, you know, in Florida, typically in the 50, 60, 70 range. And then the some of the best of those people refused to run for Congress, even though they would have been good candidates, could have won, because, you know, they weren't just going to uh, give up a career in law or medicine or whatever, uh, with particularly if they had children, and uh, take a huge pay cut for a job that involves raising money all the time and spending uh, – three days a week in D.C. and then coming back in order to raise more money and spend a little bit of time with your children. I mean, it's not a great job the way it's set up right now. And if we can make it somewhat more enticing for people who are quality people to take them, this is America. We have uh, have an incentive system based on money. Not everyone lives by it. I mean, teachers, firefighters, etc. But look, this is what it costs. And so let's Let's enlarge the pool at not a whole lot of expense involved. Paul Blumenthal, you cover money in politics, and I suspect that there are money in politics considerations that went into the setting of congressional salaries where they are now. Uh, I guess so. Uh, I mean, I I guess uh, Sharish here is not alone in – supporting this in some fashion. Oh, you too? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, we got him, man. Let's take him. Oh, man. (laughs) But – You know, I mean, I think that what this is, is like you have to look at this from a perspective of corruption and a perspective of democracy. You know, you have uh, you want to get the best people into Congress. You want to get people from varying walks of life. Right now, I think it's over like 95 percent or maybe even 100 percent of people who come to Congress are from white collar professions. A lot of them already have money in their bank account. You know, they you know. It's hard to get somebody who hasn't saved a lot of money, who comes from a working class background to actually run for Congress and get there. And then you're going to say because of basically decades of anti-Washington sentiment that like you're going to have to live in your home and also live in D.C. 
at the same time, which is an expensive proposition. And a lot of people don't run for Congress because of this reason. And yes, $174,000 is a lot of money. And they already get are able to write off some of their housing uh, as a tax, tax deduction, which isn't that great. I think $2,500 a month is too much money. Uh, you know, th- these guys can share houses, they can live together. But, you know, I think that members of Congress are underpaid and even more oh. than, even more than that <laughs> even more than that congressional staffers are underpaid and it's part of the reason why we have so much corruption in the city it's now, part what, of the reason why you have a revolving door between congress and k street is you know uh you know our, our old washington bureau chief ryan grimm used to always say the two word reason why people leave capitol hill to go work as a lobbyist is sidwell friends <laughs> the fancy <laughs> The private fancy high private high school yeah. in Washington, D.C. Now, the current salary, my understanding is that it is set so high, you know, so much above the median U.S. household income in order to prevent something that had been going on in past decades, which was lawmakers giving paid speeches while they were serving in office because they felt poor. And so he said, fine, we're not going to allow you to give speeches, which is now illegal. We're going to give you a higher salary so that you can get by without feeling you need to do these things that look really corrupt. How is it that this salary has is no longer high enough? Is it just because the private sector is so much richer? Isn't this a, an arms race that's going to get way out of hand? Well, getting back to what do we value? I mean, if we really honestly valued good teachers and, and emergency you know responders, we would pay them six-figure salaries. We as a society don't. But if you think that you ought to get qualified, competent and talented people, then come on, guys. There's only 535 members of Congress. We're not talking about all that much money. And if it's a philosophical thing where, no, we should make sure they get no more than, you know, let's just say the median household income. Fine. Go to your neighborhood bar. Find somebody there who you want to be your surgeon or your, you know, tax accountant or something like that. I mean, look, we spend money for people who we think have specialized skills. Why is Congress not one of those things. Okay. I think you guys are wrong. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. <laughs> SV Date, Paul Blumenthal, thank you so much for talking to me about President Trump and members of Congress's salaries. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Bye. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Daniel Marins. Hello. Great to be here. And we have a special guest, Matt Stoller, a fellow at the Open Markets Program at New America, which is a think tank. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So we wanted to talk about something that is uh, a topic getting more and more recognition as a serious problem, uh, one that the government could address if there were the political will to do so, and that's monopoly power, corporate concentration, Amazon buying Whole Foods being one of the most recent big examples of this that people are familiar with these companies and might think it's weird that Amazon is buying Whole Foods. Why would Amazon buy Whole Foods? Amazon sends products to your door. Whole Foods is a food store where you go to buy groceries. So what? what's up with that, Matt? Well, Amazon – so Amazon is is a company that is dedicated to basically getting revenue out of every transaction that goes on in the economy and organizing and regulating our economy um, based on the preferences of, of of Jeff Bezos, who he has a specific vision. And so uh, what, what, what Amazon does is – you know they have a, a series of kind of infrastructure platforms, and one of them is Amazon Marketplace, which is where you go and you can buy pretty much anything you want. Uh, one of them is uh, Amazon Studios, which is a um, a TV um, a TV model. One of them is Amazon Prime. Another one is Amazon Web Services, which powers a lot of the the um, uh, the infrastructure of the actual internet itself. 
they have uh, a fulfillment service which does massive amounts of fulfillment for lots and lots and lots of third parties. They're basically becoming the platform for most commercial activity in our in our country. One area that they're missing is the food system. So that's 20% of consumer spending and they were not uh they haven't been able to get into it with mass investment through Amazon uh Fresh yet. So they just bought their way in with um with uh, with the Whole Foods purchase, and they bought with the Whole Foods purchase something like 400 um, great locations in cities, and they're going to use that as a platform to come in and um, and organize uh, the food system according to the the way that they've organized the sort of the rest of the economy. Let me ask a really simple question: Can a company just buy another company whenever it wants, or does the government have a role in a transaction like that? So, uh, no, you can't just. You can't just merge um, without without any political consequences. There's something called the Clayton Act, which was which is a law that says that uh, the government reviews um, m- most mergers to see if they reduce competition in the market, and if they do, the government blocks them. So this, oh wow, yeah. So this could be blocked if uh, government uh, antitrust enforcers at the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice decide that it does reduce competition uh, in a specific market, and uh, and they they sue to block it. And has the Trump Justice Department or FTC indicated that they would like to do that kind of thing? Has there been any hint of that? Yeah, there's been some. Um, you know, it's it's unclear. Like we have no idea because Trump's pretty unpredictable. During the uh, campaign, Trump talked about Amazon's antitrust problem. Uh, he did talk about concentrations of power, particularly around the AT and T Time Warner um, transaction. And uh, uh, there, you know, there was a a libertarian who was being considered for the Department of Justice antitrust post who tends to let these things go through. Uh, his name is Josh Wright. He did not get the DOJ post, which is an indication that there might be some more willingness to attack uh, attack concentrations of power. On the other hand, you know, it's unpredictable, and the Republicans tend to be lax on mergers, so we don't really know. Now, uh, Daniel Marins, you wrote a story this week about another thing happening in the corporate concentration sphere, I guess you could call it, with Google, what went down? Yeah, so the European Union has their own antitrust enforcement division led by a woman, a a Danish um, politician named uh, Margrethe Vestager. And I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Just assume you did. But – and after, I guess, a couple years of investigating Google's behavior and and the way it it preferences its own – Google Shopping um, sort of feature over other online shopping in its search results and investigating that for an anti-competitive feature that Google basically owns the platform, they dominate it, and they are then biasing their own product their own products in another platform through the use of that platform. And and after looking at it for a couple of years, the European Union basically said this is anti-competitive. And in other words, it's it's a it's monopolistic type behavior. And they slapped him with the biggest corporate fine. Uh, like a for cu- a corporate, couple billion uh, dollars, right? Antitrust fine in in I think so. Yeah, in, so it's two point seven billion dollars sing, for a single company. Uh, two point seven billion dollars. Now, um, the thing that I'll I'll just throw in here is that. This was derided by me- by politicians in the United States in the run up to it. There were there were, including Democratic members of Congress, that were, especially from the Silicon Valley area, who were lobbying the EU to to not do this. Oh, really? Um, and and sort or, or had in the had had against uh, similar issues in the past, and in and and in some cases uh, reacted negatively to the decision as well, and and then. Um, just to throw in another thing, the Obama administration FTC basically gave them a slap on the wrist for similar behavior. Okay, so what? Yeah, this is the kind of they did this in Europe, and it seems like the kind of thing that you don't hear about that much in our politics. Like it's not a political issue as frequently, where you look to the leaders of parties and, and expect their uh, them to make statements on any corporate merger that happens to be going on. So is, is that going to change, do you think, with the increased attention to this, at least among think tanks that we've seen here in D.C.? Yeah, I mean, it is changing because the the model of um, of looking only at consumers and price, which is the model that's been pursued on antitrust enforcement since since the, the early 80s, is kind of ending. 
Um, like if you look at Amazon, uh, it's it's you know as consumer, it's great. It's super convenient. You get anything you want. Um, the the you know, like it's hard. I mean, the, the benefits are very real. Um, but if you also look at what they're doing to the producing economy, right? Um, author since two thousand seven, they came out with Kindle. The 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 income of authors has dropped by roughly twenty five percent. So it's a company that loves books and hates authors, and they're going to do that to farmers. They're doing that to producers all over the country, and um, you know you've seen this built on a chain store movement that has emerged since the '80s, uh, that has caused dramatic regional inequality, that has caused um, also just inequality in general. That's caused a a substantial amount of political chaos. So people are aware of income inequality. Yeah, I mean, you have you have the retailing decisions of an entire country are now being made by essentially by one company in Seattle, and that's that's crazy. I mean, we've always prioritized community control um, and competition in this country, and increasingly, people have no access to the institutions that govern and organize their lives, and they know it, and they're showing it in the political system. Now, it happens to be coming from the commercial sector, and that's what monopoly power is really all about, um, and that's why it's it's not going away. Uh, it's it's only going to get worse. Now, there are a host of of companies like Yelp, Oracle. Um, News Corp that have been very explicit about the threat to their to their business and to their political rights that these super tech platforms are are actually um, are, are showing, and um, these are not left wing groups; these are powerful corporate interests. So you're you're seeing a a really interesting moment where where like it's a it's an inter corporate kind of fight. Um, and and that's why it's gonna it's not gonna necessarily the the fight isn't necessarily gonna come from within the Democratic Party. It may come from the right, or it might come from the left, or it might come from both. Now you you wrote a long story recently about how Democrats lost their soul on the question of antitrust issues. In the past hundred years, they did the Democratic Party did fight against consolidation of corporate power. They would bust up trusts. Yeah, I mean the the from the 1930s to the 1970s, and you can go back to actually the British East Indies Company in 1773. That was really a protest against monopoly. I mean, the British East Indies Company was sort of the the equivalent of of the Amazon of its day. Um, so we literally launched an American Revolution against monopoly, and then you bring that forward to the Great Depression uh, and the trust busting of um, you know of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the late 30s, which was you know Louis Brandeis, um, Thomas, who pursued a Jeffersonian model in the Industrial Age. And that that carried through, and Democrats won basically every Congress from 1930 until uh, 1994. And then when they got rid of of their anti uh, concentration uh, bias, and the, this implied things like local control of local communities, small banks, small retail, small farms, family control of these institutions. Um, when that went away, when when Clinton got rid of it in the '90s um, and followed along the Reagan model, what you saw was incredible political destabilization, um, and a pro-monopoly Democratic Party has been losing. Um, so, so, Daniel Marins, you've been covering the sure. special elections that have been happening, uh, including the primary election in Virginia, where I think Tom Perriello made this uh, a question: the, the primary uh, in the, the governor's race that's happening there. Is th- is this getting traction in the campaigns? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I would say aside from Tom Perriello in Virginia, the former Virginia congressman, he ran a gubernatorial race that ended a, a few a couple weeks ago, and and he he talked about breaking up consolidation, the impact it had on ordinary Virginians. He talked a lot about, especially the state regulated power monopoly of uh, Dominion Energy, and refused to take donations from them, saying that the people that regulate this monopoly should not be taking money from it. Now, I have not heard the guy that ultimately won that race, Ralph Lieutenant, Northam. Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam, bring that up yet on the campaign trail. I don't know that he's especially eager to. And so an early an early fail, I would say, in terms of <laughs> how monopoly messaging resonated. But I think as, as something that, you know, that Matt might tell you, if you look at the results in terms of some of this is, is related to other factors like where Perillo's political base is, but he he really did extremely well in in rural uh, sort of South Side and Southwest Virginia areas that had traditionally been Democratic but had trended sort of culturally conservative and moved out of the party. There's reason to believe that he actually brought people out who 
hadn't been voting or hadn't been voting Democratic in a long time, and and that that was part of the economic populist message that did it. So, Matt Stiller, we're in like a populist moment where supposedly populism is this potent force that helped Donald Trump win the election, or you know, it's it's at least one of the things in the mix. Is there a potential for this to become a right-left thing where uh, conservatives and, and liberals agree and it continues to scramble American politics? Look, I mean, a couple of months ago, United Airlines called the cops and had a guy beaten up and pulled off a flight because they needed his seat, which he had paid for, for someone else, right? And this was a massive, like, it was a huge deal for a couple of days. It was all over the news. And it's a monopoly issue. And everyone knows it's a monopoly issue. Um, because they, consolidation in the airline yeah, industry, they, don't have made, to, they have no accountability. They got away with they it. They literally can just beat up and bloody their customers and it doesn't matter. And they can do that to actually entire cities and they have been doing it to entire cities where it's, it's hard to get around this country unless you're going to a few cities. It's, just a, it's as a result of monopolization and the concentration trend. Um, is so now, But no politicians jumped on it and said, hey, it's time to re-regulate the airlines. However, the first politicians who do – and, and figure out the language and actually start doing it are going to do very well. I mean, and we know this. I mean, it's we, we, politicians just don't know how to talk about this problem because it is so um, alien to modern political culture, although it is really what American political culture was about from the 1770s until the 1970s. But don't we have break up the banks? Like that's pretty Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, Bernie did really well with um, the, the too big to fail uh, critique. And I think, you know, you saw Trump make a lot of those arguments during the campaign. And the, the, the general problem with monopoly is that people feel like they have no uh, control over the institutions that organize their lives, aka, you know, corporate power. And it's not about socializing the, the those institutions, which is where a lot of the left comes at. It's about breaking the those institutions down so that they – so that people can reach them, right? So that you have uh, – uh, you can talk to the people that run your life instead of having to go through automated phone trees. And that's – you know, that that's a very political and personal issue. And it, and it sounds kind of conservative because what the conservatives think is that these this corporate concentration is a cultural attack on American communities, which it is. Um, and uh, – but it also sounds kind of left-wing because you can say, well, it's breaking up corporate concentration. Now, this is – it's very confusing and politicians don't really know how to run with it and the whole political apparatus, all the political consultants and the academics and so on and so forth. You know, they all have to learn this stuff uh, and they're, they are learning it right now. And I, and I think you're going to see this become the focal point of politics in the next five to ten years. All right. Matt Stoller from Open Markets Program at New America. Thanks so much for coming on the HuffPost Politics podcast. We are, a, you know, a mom and pop shop here. Uh, you know, no big company controls what we say. You know, we have nothing to do with any kind of giant corporate consolidation. Uh, Daniel Marins, thanks to you also. Thank you. We'll Wonderful. Right and thank you, Verizon. <laughs> yes, buy Verizon stock. <laughs> So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by Matt Stoller, as well as HuffPost reporters Sam Stein, Jonathan Cohn, S.V. Date, Paul Blumenthal, and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available in iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. I will read it and reply. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.